revealing the ancient secrets of the podcast supreme, it's Geek Top 5! Yay! I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And it's been a heck of a couple of weeks, and we're here to tell you about the five best parts of it. Starting with number five, uh, continuing their trend of sort of reversing their Romulan isolation, Nintendo has teamed up with a escape room company called Scrap to make essentially a Legend of Zelda escape room. Okay, so escape rooms are this thing where people have created uh, these elaborate puzzles in rooms and you have to solve the puzzles in order to get out of the room. And they're games and it's like a real-life video game and a lot of them are just these sort of half-baked back rooms of uh, semi-abandoned houses. But every once in a while... <laughs> it's a good pitch. Kind of. It's, uh, yeah. Every once in a while you'll find one where there's like a really good budget. Like the in Toronto there's uh, one set up in Castle Loma right now and you go up three floors of this tower and there's actors involved and it's like really you, you get real bang for your buck sometimes it's just like you know a couple of uh, plywood walls and a, a door and a mattress in the corner and you gotta puzzle your way out of that somehow but with nintendo money behind something like this yeah we were hoping it'll be a lot better this kind of stuff it seemed to pop up kind of out of nowhere i guess it comes from japan like most good ideas yeah let's face it uh, very trendy for a bit, fun group activity. For a while, that's all anyone ever wanted to do when they went out. I guess it beats clubbing. Um, but it seems, no, this is a really cool thing to theme it properly. Like, I've, I've seen the ones, like, you know, it's a horror movie themed one, and you're trapped in with the killer. But video games, I mean, you, I mean don't let me steal your thunder. You brought up the comparison to video games. Video games are, tend to be an environment where you can't proceed until you solve X. And that's sort of what this is replicating. So mm-hmm. matching that with The Legend of Zelda. That's really cool. Legend of Zelda is full of these, you know, the dungeons where you have to go into this maze and find keys and unlock doors and break pottery, break pottery. And then you have, you know, you find a bow and arrow and a big key. There's almost always a big key <laughs> since the early nineties and rupees and rupees, plenty of rupees. Now this seems like a really fun thing. It's um, the company before it's called scrap. They've done this sort of all over the states. They have these really fancy, really themed rooms. Can't say I've ever had the pleasure of going. There are a few um, in Toronto, actually. They've got a yeah. couple locations here, yeah. Have we you should... done any? I haven't done any by this company, but, uh, you know, there. I, I haven't done an escape room yet. Not that I've done that many, but I haven't done one yet where I've been disappointed. And these guys seem like they've got their stuff together. If they're good enough that they've spread out over North America and that Nintendo wants to work with them, I have a pretty good feeling they, they know what they're doing when it comes to... Escape rooms. Yeah, fair enough. And again, I haven't been to any of these myself, but they all have a great reputation. And turning it into a Zelda experience is pretty cool. I mean, there's obviously going to be some limitations. You probably aren't going to be levering yourself across bottomless pits with a hook shot. Yeah, um, probably won't meet any Gorons. Yeah, yeah. All those the big spiders that look like skulls. That well, actually, I can see them sort of dummying something like that up. But uh, yeah, but no, there's a lot of fun stuff in there, and a lot of things to look forward to if you want to give it a shot. Uh, so far, the only locations they've announced are in the, it looks like the eastern United States, but there's still some yeah, dates like off New of York it. and Chicago and places yeah. like that. Yeah. You can get to the link through our, our post on geektop5. Either through geektop5.com or through the Facebook address, but you can also go directly to their website at scrapzelda.com, which is such a poorly planned URL. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, I get that these are escape room specialists and not marketing specialists, but really... But then again, I guess if you call your company Scrap, you've already gotten over the you know, over any problems that come with that. Um, but so far, all we really know about it is that there was a very crudely assembled, you know, trailer, quote unquote, video. Yeah. With basically d- different pieces of old Legend of Zelda art with text written on top of it. 
But it sounds cool. It sounds like a good time. I think one of the things that's appealing about it is, to me anyway, is the fact that it is a traveling thing. So it's only a limited time deal. Like you, you go in and do it on one of the few days that it's in town or you miss it. And it's really a unique experience if you have a chance to, to do it. Yeah, which, I mean, you get the sort of the same thing, like, whenever the circus comes to town. I guess it's usually Cirque du Soleil these days, yeah. but I guess in major urban areas. Uh, it was really good, by the way. Uh, uh, great, great. Yeah, no. I liked it. <laughs> uh, no, but I can see if this catches on, like, I, I'm sure they'll be back around. But it seems like a really good marriage of ideas. It seems like there's a lot of peanut butter and chocolate in here. Yeah, I mean, what um, other video game ideas could they do? Like a Mario one where you go through... Pipes or something? I don't. Eh, it's possible. Mario isn't as puzzle solving. No, but, but when you think of games like Mist, yeah. you know, or now The Witness is basically the new Mist. Okay. Um, but those are like that's all you did was navigate these photorealistic environments and solve stuff and open books and and then like it's, it sounds really weak <laughs> when I say it out loud like that. But no, listen, Mist was really cool. There's a lot of puzzle games like that that are really cool. I mean, look here, Portal. Yeah. is a wonderful example. Pro again, little difficult to adapt to real life because we don't actually have portals or teleporters yet. No, the quantum thing doesn't count. We've been over that. But like those are really cool, really big names in video games and like bringing it to life is a big thing everyone's into these days. I mean, heck, I I, I probably wouldn't go traveling to the states to do it, but I would love to give this a shot. I've been to one really cool one where you had to hit, uh, uh, there was like a laser shooting out, and you had to get it to hit a target on another side of the, the room, and it was all involving mirrors. So oh, to, like, which is a classic video yeah, game puzzle. it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, those, every game has that, where the light, it's usually sunlight, where it's coming in, you have to position mirrors. Yeah. They have to hit a switch and open a door or something. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, they've already got the idea in, in some of the semi-low-rent ones that I've done, so it's a, it would be pretty cool to see it done with, I keep saying it, with some of that Nintendo money behind it. It sounds like a ton of fun. Again, it's ScrapZelda.com. Check it out. See if they're coming somewhere near you. And if you go, tell us how it is. On to number four. The uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of having uh, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a, a weird sort of sibling joining it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is Marvel's, it is releasing Marvel's The Inhumans, a deal with, with ABC and with IMAX? With IMAX. Which makes me think, wait a minute, they have IMAX on TV now and how does that work? Well, I, that is a good question. Uh, all we know so far, as, as far as I can tell, is that the whole show is going to be shot using IMAX cameras and the first two episodes are going to be sort of merged and put in theaters as a, a theatrical experience. This sounds really cool to me. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of IMAX. It's uh, one of the best ways to see movies. Uh, and to have them partner with Marvel to make a movie is seems to me somewhat unprecedented, and uh, I'm, I'm dying to see what it looks like. Yeah, it seems like overkill a bit in terms of television, but... Yeah, but the everyone's getting bigger and bigger TVs. Uh, picture quality is getting better, uh, and sound quality is getting better, and those are the things you go to IMAX for. So maybe mm. this is a way for IMAX to start to branch out from just having huge screens. Uh, so that's interesting. So a few years from now, when everyone has their 4K like, HDR televisions, yeah. then maybe, yeah, maybe IMAX will look really good on there. So technologically and strategically, it's it still strikes me as a little bit bizarre, but... We'll see what they do with it. Uh, but it also means, hey, more Marvel content, and if you know, the Inhumans sound familiar to you and you're not a Marvel guy, chances are it's because you've seen that this is, this is sort of tying into the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. The 
I mean, part of it is because uh, the Marvel TV and movie people don't have access to the X-Men characters. So that means they don't have access to mutants. And mutants became this huge part of the Marvel Universe in the comics. The Inhumans were around at the same time, but they're kind of different. They're, they're this sort of segmented, isolated population. They've got their, their own history separate from humanity, whereas mutants are just sort of born that way from humans and, and are just part of the regular fabric of society right. and are Mutation oppressed isn't because a choice. of it. Yeah, whereas with the Inhumans, I mean, it's also not a choice, but they're also segregated. They're their own thing. They're completely okay. separate. And so, oh man, it gets so convoluted. But <laughs> it does. They've they've basically added the made the Inhumans the mutants of the Marvel Cinematic and TV universe. So we see some of that in Agents of Shield. This new one, it's not going to be like you're not going to see the character who used to be Sky. I guess she's called Quake now. Yeah, uh, you're not going to see her in it. This this show is going to revolve around Black Bolt, who's a yes. more traditional Inhumans character. Yeah, uh, he's cool. He doesn't talk because his voice it, it's it's like God and Dogma. Yeah. Just, yeah, he can blow people's heads up with his voice. He can destroy mountains if he yells. So the slightest whisper can kill someone if they're standing near him. Which is great, because it means you don't have to hire an actor who's particularly talented. Well, I guess you have to find one who's really good at emoting. Yeah, get like so. a mime or something. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but he, he he's a cool character. He's got a great costume with these wings and this uh, uh, like a tuning fork on his forehead. He's, uh, he's the king of the Inhumans, and it, so it's going to be more about his royal family. So there's him, and the bad guy will be his brother, Maximus, who's just sort of, like, really smart and kind of crazy. His wife, Medusa, who, surprise, surprise, she's got hair that can kill people and stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's also Crystal, who... Uh, <laughs> Crystal, I don't really know what her powers are, but she was a member of the Fantastic Four for a while, dated Johnny Storm. Now Medusa in the comics is dating Johnny Storm. Don, Johnny Storm gets... Johnny Storm gets around. That's Yeah, yeah that's fair. <laughs> there's also... Probably one of the more famous uh, Inhumans is Lockjaw, the teleporting dog. <laughs> <laughs> you looked at me right in the eye. And I could... I, okay, Lockjaw, the teleporting dog. Give me so he's, he's like a really big dog, and he's also got a little tuning fork. Right, what are we talking about? Really big? Like, is he the size of a horse? Is he the size? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, like I'm not good with dog breeds, but he's he's got he's like one of those jowly dogs. Like and... A mastiff. It doesn't mean anything to you. You're not good with no. Okay, like a okay, sort of like a bulldog. Is he big enough that you could ride him? Oh yeah. All right. Yeah. He's he's like yeah. I'd say like a smallish horse size. Okay. And he'll he'll show up and uh, the thing will go around with him. He can't speak, but he's very intelligent. So he's like he teleports people where they need to go and helps people out. Anyway, he's kind of a neat character. Do we know if he's going to be in the show? I don't. I don't know. I, but I would be <laughs> honestly because of how integral he is to the Inhuman stories in the comics. I would be really surprised if he wasn't involved somehow. So they're gonna have two characters integral to the plot who both can't speak. Well, one of them's a dog, so that's a pretty good excuse for not. Well, being okay, able to yeah, speak. but still, I and mean... Black Bolt will speak at some point because you don't have a character whose voice can shatter mountains and not have him speak at least once. No, that's like you use it for a little bit in the first episode to get people hooked, and then at the end of season one, you, yeah. know, you blow up Mars or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man, that'd be cool. That would be cool. I don't know about the teleporting dog. The only other thing we really know about this show so far is that at least this first season is going to be eight episodes, and it's going to be mostly about the history of the species. Okay, so it'll be less about like what they're doing now, but more like where they came from. So. Yeah. That's cool. I'll watch it. I still don't get the IMAX thing. But, we'll you see. know, yeah, we'll tell you all about it as soon as we see it. Uh, speaking of Marvel, that brings us up to our number three, Doctor Strange came out. Yeah, yeah, so I gotta, you don't go to the theater very often, but you uh, went... I'm married to a woman. 
Um, and Benedict, I don't know what that means. It means Benedict Cumberbatch stars in this movie. Ah, I see. So I see. we had to go see this movie. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'm so curious. What are your thoughts on it? I it, it, I really it, hmm. I really liked it. I had a great time. The effects are wonderful. I really liked the acting, and I walked out of it and immediately filed it away. Really, it, this movie suffers from being excellent on a shelf of excellent movies. Um, I do agree. My, heads up, minor spoilers. We're going to try to keep it uh, covered, but you might hear some things. So if you haven't seen it yet and you're real sensitive about that stuff, just hit the skip ahead on your on your thing. Um, this movie was the exact same movie as Iron Man. I wouldn't go that far, but I hear what you're saying. Like, just swap out the armor for a cool cloak. Very cool cloak. Not against it. A lot, you know, had a good time. Really liked it. I found the cheeky sentient cloak a little too reminiscent of the magic carpet from Aladdin. <laughs> but you know, I let it. I let it slide. Go on. Uh, but yeah, it's it. Benedict Cumberbatch is a jerk, which is I mean, you know, he's sort of playing the type. You yeah. see that a lot. Again, a lot like Tony Stark. And then suddenly, you know, is in a, you know, something horrible happens to him, and he has his eyes opened to a whole new world. Except instead of a suit of power armor this time around, it's magic. And the magic yeah. was a lot of fun. Yeah, they kept it fairly grounded within certain rule sets. Like he yeah, could just very do, important. Yeah, he couldn't just do anything, and for certain things he was able to do, he needed to have specific tools. So I thought that was nice because a lot of times magic just gets out of hand, where they can do whatever they want. Yeah, this is this is one of my big complaints about the Harry Potter series. Right. It's like, how does economy even work in that universe? Yeah, it's neither here nor there, and people get really mad when I bring it up. So never mind. I, one last thing about that: I also find the whole wand thing a little silly. Right, to watch. the wands. I didn't buy. And I said to my wife, I said, "No, picture that whole movie, but if they were carrying around these dinky little sticks the whole time, is it as cool?" She yelled at me. Ah, well, and, anyway, sorry. Yeah, enough of that. No, they had very strict rules for what they could do, it bought, and so you got into it, so now he can do X, Y, and Z, and then it's just exploring this whole new world. And a part of that exploring was sort of, you know, I've heard this movie also referred to as Iron Inception Man. Mm. Um, you know, they show it off in the trailers, even. A big part of this is sort of bending the world around them, and that's why they're running up the sides of buildings, like they're trying to do an Adam West thing. Right. Um, but those effects were great. I really enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah, it's... some people complain that they did it too often. I never really found that. Not, like... a li- not even a little. It's a Marvel movie. Yeah. yeah. It was well done. Um, what did you think of the villain? Uh, uh, what is Kaecilius. Kaecilius. Yeah, I complain completely irrelevant. Like, well acted. I bought it. But, you know, as soon as they said Dormammu... Yeah, it was like I haven't even read that much Doctor Strange. Most of what I know about Dormammu comes from Marvel versus Capcom, <laughs> right? But his name is Dormammu. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty great name. Yeah, uh, but no, it's fun, it's cool. And I just you know like I just I, I just it's a Marvel movie, and they are great at making movies where you can go and have a really great time. Yeah. Once again, though, it's he's he's not a terribly memorable villain. He's good at being bad, I guess, but no one has yet matched up to Loki. You know, Loki... Oh, sure. Such a great, memorable villain where you sort of... You go see the Thor movies, at least, I'd say, 55% of that is to see Loki, because he is so charming. I am a big fan of Thor, but I know what you mean. Loki is a standout. And maybe that's another example of how this movie sort of suffers from being on this same shelf, is that I'm already much more excited to see Doctor Strange reappearing with other characters right. than I am in his like in his origin story. Like This Man. sort of felt like something they had to get out of the way yeah. before bringing him in to do his cool stuff with all the other cool stuff. And like the crossovers that were being implied that we're looking forward to from seeing this movie, perfect. Yeah. Can't wait for it. 
so so happy. I mean, if if the the teaser at the end of this uh, plays out the way we think it will, I mean, Thor three is going to be great. It's it's really going to be a nice sort of mirror version of Captain America: Civil War, where that had like all these huge superheroes together fighting. And this is going to be all the heroes that didn't make the cut in that one who are working together. And they're such an interesting group: Thor, Hulk, and Doctor Strange. I mean, yeah, they, wow. they, they, those three personalities are going to bounce off each other so well. Yeah. But see, that's what I'm saying. I feel like it detracts from this movie because I don't really care about the bad wizard or about like his. Like, I just want him to be Doctor Strange now and go hang out with Thor. I will say that one thing that will definitely stick with me from this movie, like you said, a lot of it is very much feels a bit like a rehash of other Marvel origin films. But one of the things that really set it apart was the ending. And I don't want to spoil it, but it's not a, a beat em, beat em up at the end. And I, I think that can get tiresome in a, a magic movie where if they're just throwing spells at each other and it's all these lights and effects and it gets a little boring if it's just people whipping magic balls at each other and eventually one of them gets worn out. But this, it's a thinking man's solution to, to the problem at hand. It's a very clever way to resolve the, the yeah. dilemma. And it's you believe that it's not quite resolved. Yeah. Like if it, if an ending ends in that kind of like a you know a magic duel or a brawl, the only way it's not really over is like you know, they'll carry the villain to jail and right. the villain will escape. That's the only that's the only way out of that. In this case, they've done something clever, but there are consequences, and we're already aware of some of the consequences, and that's going to be building. That's a much more interesting hook. Yeah, and I think it will definitely help when they do a Doctor Strange 2. Now, do we know for sure there is a Doctor Strange 2 on the docket? I think you could do another, at least one more standalone Doctor Strange movie, and uh, it would be, I think it would be even better than this one, honestly. Hey, you know what, and yeah, I would go see it. This was great. I had a great time. I will probably go see it again. All right. Number two on the list. Um... <laughs> All right, I'm looking forward to this one, because yeah, we this... were debating this weeks ago. Ah, oh, this was grinding my gears. The um, We've talked about Star Trek Discovery, the upcoming television show, which is not on television, which is behind a paywall-guarded subscription service where the only thing on it really is Star Trek. Like, basically what they're saying is pay us $6 a month in addition to the rest of your TV to watch Star Trek. People aren't that happy about that, and they were talking to the guy, this is um, the head of CBS Interactive, Jim Lanzone, and basically he's saying, well, the reason we're doing that is because science fiction doesn't really do well on TV. Okay, now, I, now, the, before we even get started on this, I hate that I'm in the position where I'm going to be the one defending the big, giant, money-making nobody's CBS making Corporation. Nobody's making you. I feel like I have to. I'm making me. Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, his exact quote is, it's, and this is part of what Graham's going to get to, is, is it's not something that is traditionally done really well on broadcast. And he mentioned that it's not impossible, and, and this is another quote, and things like Lost and Heroes have had parts of sci-fi. Parts of sci-fi, really? Okay. Uh, just... but, but in the end, he's decided it would probably be best to put it on this digital service, and that'll be best for everyone. Um, my position is science fiction is not the problem. The problem here isn't that science fiction doesn't do well on broadcast. You're the problem. <laughs> Everybody loves science fiction. Oh, it's, I think it's really irresponsible to blame the genre. Uh, but but like, think about it. The examples given there were Heroes and Lost, both of which started off with huge followings and 
those quickly declined and people just lost as a prime example of hate watching where people kept watching it just to be like, oh, this is so stupid. I can't believe they're doing this. Oh, this man, when Lost was on, you guys wouldn't shut up about Lost. All anyone wanted to do was talk about Lost. At that point, it's one of those things that, you know, like there's no such thing as bad press or whatever. Right, right. If all anyone wants to do all day is talk about your television show, you, you win. My That's second, a victory condition. My second point is... It is not on its surface. The visuals of it do not scream sci-fi. Same thing with Heroes. They, the Heroes had family drama. It had high school drama. It had relationship dilemmas. It was all set in a modern world. Lost was like Gilligan's Island except with smoke monsters. There's like every... To, to the layman watching it, they would not necessarily have categorize those as sci-fi. Okay, well, let's let's only two examples. Let's look at some others. I spoke to Geek Top 5 special television correspondent, Zinni. I said, off the top of your head, can you just name some sci-fi shows that have come out recently that you've watched? First one she hit me with was Dark Matter. Dark Matter, it's, uh, I believe it's on the sci-fi network in the States. Space I, and Sifi. Space and Sifi. Uh, it's, it's, so those are, it's a niche network anyway that's catering to this fan. Uh, also, I, I haven't I haven't actually watched it myself, but it screams low budget Canadian sci fi series. Okay, medium budget. Once again, I would argue the budget is not science fiction's fault. I think the people running it is fault. But yeah, if we go, like, the next one, like, so we're gonna. I have a whole list. This is gonna take forever. <laughs> but she came up with Dark Matter, Timeless, Mars, Travelers, Class. I don't know Travelers. Uh, it's a co production between Netflix and Showcase, which is a weird one. Um, hmm. Anyway, all these shows are out. They're not necessarily top of the line, but they're all being renewed. They're all being run. New episodes are coming for all of them. And that's just like what's off the top of her head, stuff that she's seen recently. Sure. There's also, I mean, you know, the, the example I mentioned on the page was Battlestar Galactica. Right. Again, that is a, another show where it's... There are robots in spaceships, I know, Brad. I know. That one is definitely hard sci-fi. There's no way to deny that that show is sci-fi. But again, it's on a sort of sci-fi ghetto channel. That was a, a sci-fi network thing. Right. Now, that's is that science fiction's fault? I say no. Well, People oh. love science fiction. We see it everywhere. There was that movie that came out last year. Um, oh, shoot. It was right at the end of the year. The, the Force... The, uh, the Force Awakens, that movie that no one saw because no one likes sci-fi. Such a jerk. Can't believe you did that. <laughs> what really? Did, did, are, did people just not like sci-fi? They didn't go watch that Star Wars movie? Right. No! Star Wars took over the planet. They were selling BB-8-themed oranges right. in grocery stores. Right. That's completely insane. And I'm a fanatic, and I thought it was completely insane. <laughs> okay, but, but uh, let's stick with TV, if we may. I can't really think of a hard sci-fi show that was on broadcast network like CBS, ABC, NBC that lasted more than a couple seasons and didn't suffer from low ratings. But I don't think that's science fiction's fault. Like the, 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 the fan base, Star Trek. Sure, the original Star Trek didn't, but you know, the, like Star Trek, they kept making it. Yeah, and, for three years, and each season... It almost no, but I mean, canceled. then they did Next Generation, and then they did Deep Space Nine, later, and then they did Voyager. Next Generation was on... Uh, syn- went right right to syndication, so it wasn't on a network. It was sold to, to local networks, and they put it on... No, when- see, yeah, but see, we're arguing two different things. What I'm saying is that it, co- like, it could be successful on broadcast. Sure. Like, it has enough of a fan base. It clearly has enough people who are interested in these types of shows... That you could make it work. If it's not working, 
It's not the genre's fault. And I don't see how hiding this show behind a digital subscription paywall service is going to help with that. Okay, here's the thing, though. I They're launching this service. They want people to, to buy it and use it and, and, and tell all their friends about how great it is. Also, it's not just Star Trek. There's also going to be a Good Wife spinoff on there, and you're going to have access to every CBS that's, show ever. That's true. They're, every show is on there. I mean, I was referring specifically to new content. Now, you're right. The other thing is that if you're going to, to launch this, it's a risky move. They're the first network that I'm aware of to go out on their own, not necessarily leave Hulu, but do their own thing with these Netflix-type delivery services. They're going to want to put their best foot forward. And if that means this Star Trek show gets uh, a better budget because of it, if they get the best people involved, which it sounds like they do, in order to make the best show possible... I'm all for it, you know? Give them a bigger budget. Put them on that show. Make people pay a little extra for it. It's worked for HBO, you know? They put it... Westworld is, is great sci-fi that's on there. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones would not have been made if it had to be on a, a regular network thing. And it's one of the best shows on TV. When you're going on a regular broadcast network, you have to attract way more eyes than you do when you're on a, a streaming service. So in order to make uh, it work, you have to make a lot more compromises to appeal to the... the largest number of people whereas this they might be the show might be able to survive if every single star trek fan and just every single star trek fan pays their six dollars a month to get access to it and that could keep it going and if that's what it takes for me to get new good star trek i'm willing to make that sacrifice i don't want another enterprise which had to appeal to the largest group it possibly could and failed to appeal to anyone that's a very good point. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but nah, it's, those people are few and f- I mean, somewhere out there is somebody who likes everything, but Enterprise, that's no, fair. Um, there's plenty of arguing to do about whether or not this service is a good idea. Um, my main point is that this guy is a dummy. Um, and he made me mad. <laughs> well, I can't argue that. Yeah. So, moving away from something that makes me mad to something that makes me so happy, our number one thing on the list uh, unfortunately happened right after our last episode, uh, was N7 Day. It was November 7th. It was a very important day for the Mass Effect franchise. It's possibly one of my favorite new emerging science fiction universes. Does it even count as as emerging at this point? I mean, they've had at least three games, four or five novels, uh, comic book series. It's unfortunately not quite as popular as Star Wars, but it has the potential to really be up there. Mm -hmm. Mass Effect is phenomenal, and... Years after the Mass Effect trilogy was finished, we're finally starting to see some new details for the new game, Mass Effect Andromeda, due out sometime next year. We don't know exactly when yet, which is a bit of a collar tugger. But we finally got a trailer outlining some of the plot. We've, they've started this whole sort of alternate reality, to, not really an alternate reality game, but you sort of like, you're in character, you sign up to join the initiative, which means subscribing to the mailing list. Right. But you also get access to all these like trailers that are presented in character. Like, this is our universe, this is how things are going to work, these are the characters, and it's looking great. So what we know right now is that at some point in between the first game and the third game, um, the, the, the characters in this universe decided to make an... Like, they're going to take these big ships to go to another galaxy. To do go we from even the Milky know Way that? To a, we do know that. I, could it be before the first game? No. No, okay. 
Okay. It's, there's actually Mark Muir, who is the voice and sort of a celebrity of the the male Commander Shepard, posted a timeline that was oh, made. It's okay. fan created, but apparently officially endorsed. Um, but we know through official sources, at the least, it happens after Mass Effect One. And somewhere in between two and three, maybe at the latest. Like, okay. Put it this way. They're leaving before the big event at the start of Mass Effect 3. Right. But they're going to go from the Milky Way to the Andromeda Galaxy, which is really convenient for the writers because Mass Effect, there's, there's some serious effects that happen to that world at the end of the trilogy, and there's really no way to follow up on that story. So by taking yeah. these characters, like they're, they're going through a cryosleep kind of journey. So it's like 600 years out and in a whole other galaxy, so they don't have to worry about the choices you made in the first three games. Right. I do know someone who was actually a little disappointed about the idea of removing everyone from that galaxy because he felt there was a lot to still explore in that galaxy and i don't disagree with him there's it's a rich universe that they've established and it sort of feels like you barely skim the surface over the course of those three games like there's a huge big problem that you're solving and so you don't your, your focus is very much on that one enemy that one situation or on individual characters right it is i mean either way you're right it doesn't give you a great complete picture but I mean, but there is a lot there, and a lot of ancillary stuff. Like, yeah, this is the kind of game that has world building. Like, if you go into the menu and you can just sit and read yeah. for hours, like here's how the biology of this alien species works. Right. Like, I mean, crazy people would do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so they've gone to another galaxy. They've, they've. I mean, these games always sort of let you create your protagonist. It's usually a male or female. In this case, they've set it up so that there's a male and female siblings, and whichever one you want to play as, if you want to play as the boy or you play as the girl, you become an important character to sort of guide these people in. I think that's really a, a cool idea and a, a cool shift away from a lot of the RPG tropes, where it's Shepard... For me and you were completely different from how any other person played as that character, that shepherd. The way they look, the way they talk, the way they act. Having the, the characters you choose and still having the, the two different genders is going to make the experience not more not, not more the same for everyone, but well, there will be a distinct version of, of these characters. Which also helps with marketing materials. Yeah. Which is also something that you notice happened with Mass Effect. After, like, Mass Effect 1, like, the main character was always, like, in silhouette in all the art. Because mm. they didn't know what you were going to do with it. You could make them look like whatever you wanted. And there were sort of the default templates of what the characters looked like came out over 2 and 3. So they could start selling toys and posters. And, right. Yeah. So this way they've sort of found a way to make both ends happy. Which is cool. And we've seen a little bit of a new alien race, the Ket who are, it looks like they're going to be the primary antagonists. Mostly in concept art, we've seen them so far, but we have some creepy voiceover and you know, blurred shots from the trailer. Uh, it looks like it's going to be another grand old space opry. And I am so jazzed. Mass Effect has such a rich world, and it lets you do so much in it. Yeah. At setting it all up. Like, I just, I want to go back. Like, I want to be there again. Definitely. I was I was excited about the game before, but I didn't really know anything about it. So it was just sort of an abstract excitement. Seeing this trailer, it really made me, I got my, you know, gaming fingers twitchy. I wanted to get my hands on this game and, and start playing around with it. One of the really unique things, at least to my mind, unique things about the original Mass Effect trilogy was that characters would carry on from one game to the next, and things you did with those characters your individual version of that character would carry on from game to game. Like, they would remember your interactions with them. So you would... It wouldn't just be like, 
oh, I'm encountering this character and he's going to make vague references to what I may or may not have done in a previous game. They're going to talk about the exact choices that I made. This is going to be the exact character that I befriended or had a romance with or whatever. And it's it's all going to flow as one experience. And because you're the protagonist, like your choice, like those interactions and choices, it's not just like, oh, what do you like on your pizza? Like, what you did two games ago could severely impact what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, we're obviously just... I mean, we're just gushing about it now. We're both very excited, and we're coming up on time. Um, we stuff this. They're going to be releasing stuff to keep the hype train rolling until the game comes out. So we've got more months of this. When really dramatic, really cool stuff comes up, we'll let you know. In any case, you've been listening to Geek Top Five. We've got our special guest segments coming up, so stay tuned. We'll be right back with you. Hey folks, just a heads up before we get started, the following contains huge spoilers for Walking Dead. The best spoilers, you wouldn't believe. Um, We'll try to keep it fairly okay, but if you haven't been caught up on the show, you may want to wait just a bit. Welcome back to the second half of Geek Top 5. This week we've got perhaps our most uh, accredited guest so far. (laughs) We've got Professor Carmelo Tropiano here, the professor of at Seneca College, SES 289 better known as the zombie apocalypse class, and he's here to tell us the top five deaths that caused an uproar in the Walking Dead community. Happy to be here. Excellent. So just before we jump in the list, I mean, nothing I took at school was as awesome (laughs) as the zombie apocalypse class. This is a, just give me, really quickly, just to help establish your credentials. So uh, what are you you doing with this class? Well, there's always been an interest with the, the, uh, the zombie genre itself. Um, if you look carefully at the culture of the last 20 years or so, there's been a fascination with the modern zombie. And so you see the zombie in, in uh, you know, different arenas and culture. So video games, movies, TV shows, even commercials. And so there seems to be a fascination in the culture with this sort of creature, more so than any other. And so my desire is to tap into this fascination, try to explain it, explore it, interrogate it. And uh, a lot of students seem to be very interested in it. Now, uh, The Walking Dead is one of the most popular shows on TV right now. And it's it's like the icon of the zombie genre right now. What, what do you think about that? Like, why is that? Well, again, there's something going on in the culture itself that is drawn to this, uh, this sort of like uh, this monster. It's the monster du jour. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I guess the fascination is a lot of the human drama that takes place in the series. And so there's associations with certain characters that, uh, d- you know, there is a strong sort of like even familial bond between the fan and the character. So much so that they see themselves in the characters in a way. More so than any other show that I can recall. Um, from my understanding, the the audience numbers for The Walking Dead is record-breaking. So you're getting anywhere from 14 to 16 million people watching any individual episode at a time. And so there's something going on in the culture where people are fascinated by this creature. And there's a number of reasons why. Maybe we can get into a bit of that. 
Okay. So this is uh, top five deaths that caused an uproar in the Walking Dead community. So that's sort of like the internet fan base of the show and uh, these characters in particular. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Like, My impression was that like The Walking Dead basically had a rotating cast because nobody survives for very long. But you're saying that more than others, some of them were particularly outrageous. Yeah. There, there's, you know, there's some characters that I would say people long to see dead. <laughs> and then there are some characters that people will hope will never die. As I, there's, like I mentioned earlier before uh, we broadcast, um, there is actually a Twitter hashtag called, If Daryl Dies, We Riot. Okay, so <laughs> if anything happens to Daryl, my guess is the show would be in, in, in trouble. I tend to think that too. I mean, the, the people who love <laughs> Daryl... Love him with such rabid intensity. I, I, I genuinely think there would there, there could be literal riots uh, if that happened. That's hilarious. I love it. All right, let's get to it. So, out of the five most outrageous deaths, what's our number five? Number five has to be Shane. Uh, even though he was this sort of conflicted character, I think uh, the fascination there is with him as a character in terms of his uh, raw bravado, his uh, uber masculinity. Uh, which um, I think was attractive to a lot of male fan, the male fan base, but also the female fan base. So when he died, there was a lot of uh, consternation in the in the wider Walking Dead community because of his death for a number of reasons. I mean, he when I was watching the show, he's got this magnetism that's undeniable. Right. Even though, for the most part, for a lot of his run on the show. It's sort of hard to like him because of the things he does. Uh, he's he's a, a great actor. Like, every time he shows up and other stuff these days, I'm instantly drawn to his character and, and fascinated he's by what he's the Punisher now, isn't he? He's the Punisher, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. But yeah, I mean, he's sort of, like, he sort of become, I mean, it's difficult to say who's a good guy and who's a bad guy in that kind of world, but he definitely clocked over to bad guy before the end, right? Oh, yes. yeah. And but, in some ways, didn't start that great to begin with. Yeah. Depending on your perspective, like like he, actually, the introduction to his character is quite noble. Uh, there is a scene where they're in a car, the opening scene of the of the TV series, and he's he has some misogynistic like attitudes. Uh, he's very abrasive in certain ways, but then he's the very one who kept Rick alive. Mm-hmm. So he blocks the door of his hospital room with a hospital bed, and so he's not the zombies are able to get at him. Okay, so I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, there's that part of him. And then he protected his family. Then there's the other dubious aspects of his character. He went a little beyond protecting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So there's the, the, the sexual aspect. But I think a lot of this female fan base was very upset at the way at the matter of his death. Yeah, I mean, the, I think for this one in particular, this is a pretty early death. Yeah, Shane, Shane is... Is killed in season two. Okay. Okay, so it's very early. Now we're in season seven. Yeah. So he's been gone for quite a while, but his name pops up here and there. Definitely. He he yeah. looms large over yeah. the show. Yes. Okay, the... and so this is why I think his death is a notable, memorable one, and one that did cause some sort of, like... And uh, but, waves in the culture, but is it like the outrage at how he like? Do people want him to be okay, or was it just shocking what happened to him? Like, I'm not sure which way it leads. It sounds like like towards the end, you know, it was, it was it's like a him or me situation, right? Yeah, and yeah. I I, th- I think like I said, a, a a large part of the fascination with this story is the sorts of connections that that the fans make with certain characters, 
And so I think in Shane, they see this sort of like raw confidence and masculinity that soon disintegrates in sort of this like primal urges and instincts. Mm. And even with a totalitarian like impulse that he has, that he needs to exercise. So I think a number of people see aspects of their character in him and the dangers of, of having this sort of like uh, uber masculinity that he seems to manifest. So what's, who's number four? Number four has got to be Tyrese. Uh, he's, his character is interesting. It's a composite, I think, of a few characters. Daryl, Rick, and Michonne. So he has this strong presence, yet a trusting, soulful personality. And he's capable of kindness and gentleness, camaraderie, these kinds of things. And a lot of people were very upset because his death was so, um, we'll say, muted. It wasn't like a special death. He right. dies by simply being bitten. And that's it. <laughs> that's, his, that's his death. And so he's, here he is. He dies in season six when they enter Alexandria. And it just seems like a death that is so unapropos, we'll say. Like he probably merited something a little more meaningful or uh, significant. But on the other hand, doesn't that give the show an opportunity to you know, to say something with the fact that, you know, sometimes it rains. And that's, uh... <laughs> yes, that's one way of looking at it, for sure, yes. He also came immediately after another major death that happened. Like, another character who's actually on this list dies in one episode, and the very next episode, Tyrese dies. And it's not, like, that, that other character, their death was somewhat more impactful and important and, right. and, and changed things. Whereas Tyrese's death... The only one who seems really impacted by it is Sasha, his sister, right? Like, she goes, she loses it. Yes. But everyone else kind of quickly moves on. Yeah. And I, I, th I think the fans were upset about it because they wanted something a little more significant. You'll see when we get to number one what I mean. Okay, and so a lot of characters, and there weren't that many uh, black characters to begin with in the show. It's, and so that's one aspect of it as well. That a lot right. of people were upset the way he was just offed in such a, you know, almost like a meaningless way. But now they did give him, like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's his death where he sort of has like the the arguing with his inner demons as he goes. Yeah, right? like they gave him the, the opportunity visions. to yeah. work his stuff out. Yeah, in kind of a, I, mean, I don't want to go like it's not hackneyed per se, but it's kind of a traditional writer's escape. Right. But still, they gave him the opportunity to work out his stuff and make it okay. So does that, I mean, does that add, does that make that better? Or does it actually subtract from the other? See, I, when I was looking on Twitter when this happened, a lot of people were just simply upset that um, maybe he wasn't given, you know, a way to work out these sorts of, like, demons. And, you know, maybe to fit into the Alexandria community a little bit better. Um, because he didn't really have a chance. Mm -hmm. And so he dies very early, right, in, in that when they enter Alexandria. Yeah. So he's not, he doesn't even have a chance to, like, acclimate and belong. This is a major part, I think, of the show, is this redemptive aspect of the show, where some characters are able to elevate in a way, and then they fit in, or they can't. And therefore, their death is inevitable, because they just can't fit into the group anymore. One of the things that uh, I really liked about Tyrese, a, a lot of characters on the show are willing to, to kill and willing to resort to violence at the drop of a hat. Like, without any... They, they don't need much provocation to do that. Tyrese was like that for a while, but then a switch was flipped, and he became much more 
measured in his way. He refused to kill anyone, even when it it might have saved yeah. more lives. He wasn't willing to make that sacrifice a lot of the time. And I, I like the characters on the show who are willing to resist that really base urge, that the easy way out. Well, do you remember there was that one scene when they leave the prison and they're in that car? I think it's like a Mustang or something like that. And then the car gets stuck on top of all these zombies and its wheels don't turn. Yeah. A lot of people were wondering if that was the fitting death for him because he comes out of the car swinging his hammer and he's literally surrounded by all these walkers, okay? A lot of people thought that was the fitting death because he goes out swinging. Mm -hmm. Not end up in Alexandria, this peaceful town, and then die at a simple bite. So right. I think this is one of the reasons I think people yeah. were upset. Right? It's sort of the zombie world equivalent of like you know like scratching your finger on a nail and then dying of tetanus. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Exactly. But I will say one of the things that is appealing about the show is the unpredictable nature of the deaths. It sort of kind of reflects real life in that not all deaths are going to be meaningful. And and I, I know there, there's this big cliffhanger at the end of the last season where it was like Negan's going to bash someone's brains in, but you don't know who it is. And the whole episode, Eugene was ready to sacrifice himself, and it would have been a noble death for him in some way for him to. There were all these opportunities for him to get killed off, but when I was watching it, I was like, "There's no way they're going to kill him off now because it, if it's they, too obvious. It's too obvious. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it is much more interesting if they continue the story where he was ready to die and yet he's not dead and now he has to figure out what to do with his life now that he's he's still alive and and two of his good friends have been killed. Yeah, I I think the show tries to be realistic in those ways. Like it but again, I think a large part of the appeal of the show is the associations that people make with certain characters. Right. And so when something happens to a character, it 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 it, it sort of like affects the flow of the show and what makes the show interesting in the first place. You don't have this in Game of Thrones for instance where everybody seems to die. There's nobody who seems to be like sacred or untouchable. In any case, let's move on to our number 3. Getting a little more emotional now. Number <laughs> Although honestly, just from my experience with zombies, if you if you lined up all these characters and said, guess which one is going to die, I think my finger would be pointed. <laughs> <laughs> like, this one seems almost like cannon fodder to me. Yes, Beth. Beth who dies in uh, season five. And I, I, I think a lot of people were very upset about this because she had this sweet, like, singing voice, this gentleness about her, this sincerity, this beauty that she brought to the series. It's like the zombie equivalent of wearing a red shirt. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know she's not going to make it. Everyone had to know she wasn't going to make yeah, it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are upset about how unexpected and unfair her death seemed to be. You know, I don't think anyone was expecting that. And yeah. So the so... shock is there. And even the characters themselves, um, there's a melodrama there that you don't really see too much with the other characters when they pass on. So... Just, I mean, this one, I think it's really important to to lay the details out of how she goes. And so she's stuck at this hospital and there's this sort of totalitarian lady in charge who is very controlling of everything. And Rick and his people come to rescue her and they do this prisoner exchange. Right. And it's like that classic drama prisoner exchange where it's like they're in this hallway and they send people across at the same time. And then Beth is sort of in a position where she's almost across, she's almost totally free but something completely unjust happens, and she has built up this 
anger and anxiety about the leader of this group and attacks her. And the lady's a cop and just on instinct pulls her gun out and, and shoots her in the head. Yes. So it's it's a pretty dramatic sudden death. And uh, it came sort of out of nowhere. You're like, she's almost free. She's almost right. safe. And then bang, literally. Yeah. It's it's the exchange that upset people. Nobody cared that the policewoman uh, died. Right. They wanted her dead. It's similar with the governor and, and everyone's expecting Negan's death. Uh, they're anticipating it. Hopefully a a very violent one. (laughs) So it's just the exchange, the substitution that takes place. This horrible character for this sweet, you know, precious, innocent sort of presence in the show. So a lot of people were just not prepared for that. I think the other thing about it was she'd been on the show since season two and hadn't really had much character development. She was just sort of She was the nice girl. Yeah. Until the few episodes before this happened, or, or right maybe a season before, there were a few episodes with her and Daryl getting to know each other, and then there were some episodes with her at this hospital, and she was finally developing this distinct personality, and I guess that should have been our first clue, because it's like as soon as she developed this character that where we suddenly had someone to actually like, who wasn't just a cipher, then she gets her, you know, head blown up. I mean, oh, but I think also, too, if you recall, they're rushing to the hospital, right? Um, Maggie and Glenn, they're rushing to the hospital to, like, reunite. And they don't make it in time. Right. And that's the tragedy. Like, they, they see her being carried out. Like, I believe it's... Daryl's. It's Daryl's carrying her out. And she sees that scene and it's just crushed everybody. Yeah. Man, Maggie has to go through a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so while I don't necessarily think that Beth in her own right getting offed was uh, a shock, the way it happened was definitely shocking. Let's move on to number two, and I I don't know how this isn't number one. Yeah, I was surprised this wasn't number one. I don't even follow the show regularly, and this was... I, people were horrified for a week, I think. Yeah. It's all anyone wanted to talk about. Yeah. Okay, so it's... Glenn, who uh, is was killed recently in season seven, so episode one. Yes, the very first episode. Um, I think the attraction of this character is his shy innocence, his naivete. Also, I think he's the geeks. <laughs> no, that's... he's the geeks persona in this uh, TV show. Okay, I think he represents this, and so you know he develops into this sort of confidence, secure and courageous person, right? Against all the odds. When you first encounter him, you think, well, this guy can't last long. Yeah, he's just like a pizza delivery yeah, boy, yes, right? Yes, And even, he, by the way, he even says, he even calls the walkers geeks. He's the only one that does this. Okay, he references them this way. You have to wonder if there's some sort of mirroring going on there. Yeah, interesting. Okay, but uh, I think, yeah, a lot of people are upset because while they were expecting his death, given if you follow the comic books... They were hoping that he would last a little bit longer, especially to see his child born and things like that. And especially since uh, in the previous season, there had been a big cliffhanger about whether he had died yes. there, and he, he yeah. survived that. Yeah. So and it, it's all, this is why I think it's number two. People were anticipating this. Right. They were almost prepared for it when he had that sort of like false alarm with the dumpster and all that. Right? <laughs> so And there's like little hints now in, in the recent episodes of uh, the young girl that he saves... I can't remember her name. 
She's, oh, yeah. a, she's a minor character, but she now has these balloons that she prizes because they remind her of him. Right. right. Now, that's interesting to me, the thing with Glenn, like we talk about some of the earlier characters, like Beth really kind of being a stereotype that shows up in zombie movies. But you mentioned earlier that in a way, it's almost like he kind of represents the how he represents the audience yeah. in this group. He sort of personifies who a lot of the kind of people who watch the show might handle like just an ordinary person. But also, like, you know, he seems to be really capable a lot. And so there's a little bit of an empowerment fantasy happening there. Yeah. And then they just destroy him. He, like, yeah. he has one of the best arcs on the show where he starts at this naive innocence and you can see him progressing. Like, it, it's... With Rick, he seems to change every season. He's got yeah. these new personality traits. But with Glenn, it was this slow build and change to yes. what he ended up yeah. being. I like the way you put that because that arc, I think, is something that we all desire. You start off in this sort of like weakness and he develops into this man, right? Uh, you yeah. know, he's a father. He's going to be a father. He's a husband. He gets the girl, right? Yeah. The girl that was beyond his possibilities. If you remember that, that's, I think it was season two where he has sort of like this sexual interlude with her, with, uh, with Maggie. Right. But it's, it's strictly just, okay, let's have sex. It was, there was no meaning behind it. And then that actually develops into something, and he actually gets the girl. So if you think of that movie series in the 80s, I think it was called Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. <laughs> I think of uh, Glenn. He would fit in perfectly in there, I think. So, I mean, and yeah, and that's what I'm describing. What I'm wondering is then what's the message then at cutting him off? He's representing this arc that we all want to undertake, and then they just obliterate him. Well, I think, from my perspective, uh, th- th- we've gone through some of the, the big villains already. There's been the governor, there's been these other characters who have done horrible things to the, the group. So, in order to make Negan who's supposed to be, like, the worst guy in the Walking Dead universe. He's, like, the biggest evil. What better way to solidify his evil credentials than by taking out the, the, the audience, you know? The guy who represents the audience. The guy who's been there since episode one, but who also isn't, you know, untouchable like Rick kind of is. Like, Rick is the star of the show, and I don't think he's ever going to die, except maybe in the last episode. But... Yeah. Well, Glenn. a lot of these characters are probably going to die when they get tired of doing the show. Right. Uh, <laughs> After so, seven seasons, yeah. yeah like, it's been renewed for an eighth now. And my, my guess is, if my best guess is going to last maybe ten seasons, is my thinking. Um, but do you think the show could continue if, if Rick decided to leave I the actor? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it could continue without Rick or Daryl. Yeah. I don't but, think it can. So, so if you put, like, a wall around those guys, that leaves... Uh, Glenn is basically the most likable character out there and the the most shocking, uh, tragic death that could happen. And it also empowers the rest of the group. Because that means... Well, not empowers, but... Well, but now they have something to... Yeah, it gives know, them something A rallying to point. For. Yeah. But then what do you do... Like, so now that you've killed off that character and everyone left is... You know, the show is hinging on them. Like, do you have anything left? Yeah. In any case... I mean, I'm so Glenn has like you. Know, it's such that important thing, and now that he's gone, but you've on your list not the most outrageous death, which I find interesting. You have one more on even yeah. trumps that. Yeah. So what's number one? What is the number most outrageous is, death in what, the show? Number one has got to be Herschel. I, I think when he dies in season four, I think people were expecting this at some point because I don't think he doesn't last long in the comics, if I'm not mistaken. But there's something about his presence. He has this sort of like 
avuncular grandfatherly you know presence with the group he's like the moral grounding of the group and so his death kind of like suggests a meaninglessness that sets in without him there and if you look at him right he has this big beard he looks like a moses like figure right he has his bible present all the time and he quotes from it routinely when he needs to and he seems to be um the kind of person that wants to help and self sacrifices himself and dangers himself to help others. If you remember during that flu epidemic that was in the prison, right? He he went to great risks, right? Uh, and so I think when he dies, I think a lot of people just felt the soul of the show was was taken away, mm. right? And so um, you know, without this sort of like spiritual principality. Um, a lot of people were concerned, where is this headed now? To total meaninglessness, to like governor-like style, um, you know, dictatorship? What's going to happen? Right? A lot of people were concerned about this. And I think this is why there was an uproar. Now, if you remember his death, his death seemed to be a, a good send-off because it was like a samurai's death. Yeah. Right? And uh, the thing that kills me about it is is the look on his face when it happens. He, he gets decapitated with this samurai sword and but he doesn't look angry about it he doesn't look sad he looks right. somewhat resigned to it but he's trying to convey to the characters who are watching that he's at peace with it i guess and that yeah this is like this is like his he's his rick is up on the wall and like he's sort of finally instilled some of his values in rick at this point right so it's yeah. kind of like maybe not a passing of the torch but there's sort of that that he's done a good work and that it's kind of okay now is yeah. that a good way to interpret it? Yeah, yeah. Like you could, you could see that he's almost like, he's with his smile in his face. He's like passing sort of like this spiritual heritage to Rick. He sees that Rick is ready. Mm-hmm. Okay, and because the way he's sort of like, you know, trying to have this sort of like dialogue with the governor, who is impossible to dialogue with, and so I think he just feels that the group is in good hands. Here's someone who is come of age, we'll say, so to speak. And Rick's got his own white beard going at this point, right? So um, if you remember, it says, well, like he's first he's sliced in the neck, then he falls over. And then the governor later goes over and finishes the job. Right. Almost as a way of saying, I'm going to crush this. I'm going to destroy this. And I think this is what the Walking Dead community at large felt. The soul, the, the spiritual essence of the show was removed okay and there was a lot of anger in the community about this and they were very upset I remember when they had the the talking dead afterwards he was on there and the reception he received was so something i haven't seen right he's he definitely has sort of like a grandfatherly thing and it's like i can see how people who are very attached to the show might feel like they just watched their grandfather get decapitated right now, maybe, I guess actually, this will probably work out. You're probably the perfect person to ask this. 99 times out of 100, anything in a zombie scenario, it seems to me that it's, like, of the recipe that goes in there, like, you have to have the zombies, but part of, like, an important ingredient is that it needs to be bleak. And this is, it's, this isn't as obvious to me as with the Beth character, but it seems to me that, you know, that soul, like, having a character who embodies all the stuff that we think of as humanity, we think of as good stuff, it seems to me that the removal of that character is almost a necessity to get the proper thing. Yeah. So I guess what I'm asking is, like, as a fan, 
just a zombie stuff in general, if you're watching this show, don't you look at Herschel and go, well, that can't last? You, well, you, you definitely see that. Like, I agree. I think the show veers towards this sort of meaninglessness. Um, if you're watching the recent episodes, they even demonstrate this. Only thing that's respected in that kind of world is power. This is something that Herschel gladly surrendered when he became part of the larger group. He could have had every reason to take control uh, because of his status as a, a veterinarian, um, his spiritual status, his age, but he didn't do that. He surrendered it to Rick. Okay, And so this is something I think that the show, it, it demonstrates that the only thing really that's respected at this point is power. We see this with Negan. They, if you watch the recent episode, they took all the mattresses from Alexandria and then they found them burning in a pile down the road. Okay, so I, I, I think you're right. I think it's in a world like that where everything is falling apart, there's chaos, there's collapse, there is no infrastructure of any kind. Meaninglessness is what's going to set in. And the only thing that's going to matter is power. So what we're hoping for now is can this power be uh, judicially implemented in some way. And this is why I think people are saying rectatorship is over. And they're wondering now what's going to happen with him and how's he, how's he going to deal with this sort of like threat from, from Negan himself and his group. But going to your question, Jesse, about uh, maybe it being an obvious death, it's one thing to, to watch the show intellectually and think, yes, that guy is probably on the chopping block. But it's another thing to sort of live with these characters week to week, year to year, get to know them, feel like you're part of that group, and that is an integral part of the group, and then to see it get literally decapitated. It's it's hard to separate the emotions from the, the rational, logical right. writer's brain where you're like, oh, well, that was obviously going right. to happen. Okay, so it's a, a, you know, a good mark of the writing then is that you, you get so bought into these characters as people and not as archetypes. Yeah. So in that case then, when you're watching the show, what are you looking for to happen? Like, are you hoping that the characters are going to be able to you know, rebuild society? Or are we just hoping that our heroes are going to be able to take charge and they can be the Negans and not have to worry about it anymore? I want to see how they're going to survive week to week and what situation they're going to be in and how they will respond to that yeah. situation. Yeah, like a, a lot of people, like, like I have family members who ask me all the time, uh, what are you doing teaching a course like this? <laughs> Especially when they see the covers of the, some of the textbooks. Oh, and, that must be awesome. <laughs> and, uh, so that's always an interesting um, discussion that we have. But I, I tend to look at these things as a way... I think the answer in, a lot of, in The Walking Dead especially is the answer is not to become less human. It's to become more human. And I think when we see characters like that, who come into their own, so to speak, like Daryl, who comes from this sort of like redneck background, this very bigoted sort of like, um, you know, mindset, and he develops into this sort of, you know, rock, this pillar that you can depend on. This guy who now understands the difference between a Chinaman and a Korean guy. Right. <laughs> okay, so it's this kind of development that I think is very attractive to a lot of readers, this redemptive possibility in a lot of the characters. And, I mean, he started off as basically a villain, Daryl, and and has become such an important, integral character to the show. He's, yeah. he's if, if Glenn was, like, Rick's second-in-command or right-hand man, 
uh, Daryl was just as important and now may even be more so. Yes. And you remember his brother? His brother's unable to make this transition. Yeah. So what does he do? He just gives his life up, uh, which is the only token he could offer. He couldn't make the change. He couldn't fit into the group anymore. And I think his amputated arm is a suggestion of this sort of like moral degeneracy he has, this inability to make the change, right? And so then he just gives his life, if you recall, to save yeah. the group right, from the governor. We're about out of time, but uh, I, I, I can't describe how much more jazzed I am now to look at this show again. <laughs> the, very different perspective than just as you know, a zombie gore porn show. <laughs> That was great. That's music to my ears. <laughs> so, and I kind of wish I could take your class. But... <laughs> You're more than welcome to visit anytime. So, Carmelo, how if people want to uh, learn more about your thoughts on on The Walking Dead, how can people find you? They can certainly uh, follow my Twitter feed. So at ses two eight nine, it's called uh, Zombie Apocalypse. Um, it's clearly distinguished. It says Seneca Literary Course, so they can follow along there. I do live tweets of the show. Uh, I post. Uh, articles of interest and movie trailers, things like that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for, for coming Absolutely. for this. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Geek Top 5. Additional special thanks to our crew, to Stella Simunova, our webmaster, and to Ben Sound from bensound.com. Um, and we'd love to hear from you both about the show and if you have any other thoughts about The Walking Dead, because I know everybody does. Uh, there's 101 ways you can get a hold of us. Well, at least three or four. So you can email us at uh, geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. And we're on Twitter at uh, at geektop5. Uh, we would also love it if you could give us a review on iTunes, if that's where you found us, or wherever you download your podcast. You've been listening to Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again soon.